Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with two very special guests, Donald Stalter of Global Founders Capital and Ryan Darnell of Max Ventures. Uh, Ryan, Donald, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Eric. Nice to be here. So we're here to talk about a, a few topics, uh, one of which I wanted to discuss ISAs with you. Uh, you guys have been looking into the, uh, to the ISA space, uh, evaluating investment opportunities. Don, I believe you, you, you've, you've done one investment in the space. How have you guys approached where are the opportunities in the ISA space? What is most interesting to you right now? What types of businesses uh, could emerge that you could see yourself getting interested in in the future? Uh, maybe, Don, let, let's start with you. Why are you so excited about ISAs right now, and how are you approaching them from a venture capital perspective? Yeah, I mean, I think if you look at the U.S., um, uh, prices for university and college tuition uh, have been increasing rapidly uh, You know, since I was in college uh, back in 2004. Uh, you know, I think uh, it was, you know, my my college education is probably sort of thirty, maybe thirty five thousand dollars a year, and I know now that it's around sort of sixty, uh, seventy thousand dollars a year uh, at a private university in Chicago, and um, you know student debt has has been just increasing super rapidly as a consequence, and um, you you know universities and colleges are sort of incentivized to be that way, um, and so you know ISAs are really uh, a boon to a lot of folks who want to go into the job market and who want to, um, you know, succeed. Um, uh, and, and, you know, I think that today uh, there are a whole bunch of different startup companies emerging kind of off the back of that and off the back of the creativity that the ISAs are affording people and sort of the security. Um, and so, you know, we're digging deeply into the space. We actually have a play in Europe um, right now that's sort of akin to, um, you know, a Lambda school, um, you know, but helping, uh, sort of leverage talent across kind of Eastern Europe, um, uh, you know, where sort of the pricing is, is sort of slightly different um, and where the educational opportunities um, are also you know, even more potentially technical than what you might see um, across the U.S. Uh, you know, we're massive, massive fans of the category right now. And what other uh, sort of use cases are you excited about? If we're back on the podcast in three to five years and we're talking about both of your ISA portfolios, uh, what other companies or types of companies or, or use cases could you see being enabled by ISAs? Well, I mean, a lot, obviously, sort of, as I mentioned, a lot of coding businesses, um, you know, they're, they're businesses that, uh, I mean, primarily right now, sort of coding businesses is what I've seen, but they're also um, sort of what people call micro schools. Uh, there's a business called Prenda. Uh, it was actually a YC business uh, where sort of kindergarten through eighth grade schools uh, in homes and informal spaces, um, you know, are financed effectively through sort of ISAs. Uh, totally. Um, uh, Ryan, how about you? How have you approached the space and, and where, where are you excited or could you see yourself investing? Yeah, I mean, some of the things Don said, which are clear, like it does a better job in educational from uh, inlining incentives. And obviously we have a big, big student debt problem. Um, you know, two areas I think about that are, that I think are the biggest, uh, most obvious value add are one, uh, lowering, lowering the barrier to increasing your earning power. 
right? And I think that's a big thing. I think that's what it's 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 obviously they're tech people creating these earliest versions of the venture back ISA. So our mind's gonna early in the early days go to uh, hey, well, how do you do that? You teach someone how to code, right? It's a very objective way to increase your earning power quickly is teaching someone how to code. But I think if you think further out, right, you think about kind of you know the macro economy and what's happening now, right? For the last fifty years or so, we've had globalization. Um, we're in the deployment phase of digitalization and we're starting to move into the phase of automation, right? And, you know, when that happens, I think everyone's pretty clear. I mean, Andrew Yang's created a whole platform on this where people, some jobs, certain jobs are going to go away, go away and certain jobs are getting automated. And I think a few things, one, being able to, I think it can be very useful when it comes for people in mid-career having to go out and learn new ways to earn money, right? And I think if you could, Look at some, if you can look at a certain demographic and, you know, there's not people who, you know, going back to traditional school and going back and maybe getting like a graduate degree and taking on debt to do that and being out of the workforce for a long period of time. Probably doesn't make sense if you're, you know, 45, 47, you have a family, you need to earn money. But if you could, if you could align, if you could create schools similar to Lambda that align incentives and they lower the barrier to being able to earn more money in a, in a, in a, in a low time period, that's an extremely valuable proposition for the market right and that's one it's going to be applied in other places outside of coding coding's most obvious but like it's going to be applied in other professions as well and i think if you're able to do that that's extremely valuable um i think the other thing too is like unlocking talent and creativity right because a lot of a lot of professions um would that you know i can go into a few examples that i think are interesting um but they they require almost like venture capital a money losing business requires on the front end they require a subsidy, right? And there's actually there's actually interesting use cases about whether it's being an artist, whether it's being like certain types of professional athletes that don't get paid very much in the front end, where there's actually non-formal agreements already happening, like friends and family, where there's money fronted and there's like an informal and income sharing agreement, you know, kind of a pen and paper or a handshake deal. But there's also a ways where I think ISAs can be more formalized and unlock different, different uh, forms of creativity in the world as well. Yeah, I mean, to you sort of add to what Ryan is saying, I mean, you know, I think, um, you know, ISAs sort of need to, you know, first off, unlock, you know, substantially higher incomes uh, for a particular consumer. And then sort of secondarily, you need to sort of reduce the risk or the uncertainty of getting, you know, a good job or a raise. Um, you know, I think that sort of taking those two theses um, and, and sort of thinking about the U.S. Uh, economy or sort of society and the European sort of economy or society and sort of others, um, really uh, countries where, uh, you know, there's full support for people, you know, from the government across kind of education, medical, you know, kind of you name it. Um, there's, you know, there's more of an opportunity to feel creative and to feel empowered um, rather than in markets where, um, you know, we're, you know, call it strapped to, you know, pay bills and to, you know, worry about sort of, um, you know, everything from, you know, high priced education as mentioned to um, a whole slew of other things. And so, uh, you know, sort of one thing that, that, that I've discovered or sort of thinking about ISAs is, is that um, they give people one heck of a lot more freedom around, you know, what they want to do with their lives around, uh, you know, uh, coming up with ideas and starting businesses. So I think that, you know, and we've sort of seen this if you, if you read the news, but uh, a whole bunch of new sort of entrepreneurs are going to come out of um, uh, the world of ISAs, but not just, um, you know, pursuing ISA oriented businesses, 
uh, rather um, just feeling the freedom to, to go out and build new things. Yeah, that's a good example. So just to kind of riff on that, like, um, you know, I invest in Sweden quite a bit, right? And if you look at Sweden's startup ecosystem, um, on a per capita basis, they've created more billion dollar companies in the past 10 years than anywhere else in the world but Silicon Valley. And you start to think about why that is, like there's not one certain thing you can point to. But one thing that the founders have there is they have, you know, they, there's more social safety nets there and they feel uh, less risk, you know, there's less risk to taking big swings and exercising your creativity, right? And so to Don's point, like ISAs could also have a very positive, like indirect effect on the venture market, where if more smart people, when it comes to unlocking talent, if more smart people feel like there's less downside, like no one wants to live in the poor house, right? And if more people feel, smart people and talented people feel empowered to take big swings and go for it and think less about the downside, knowing that there's mechanisms to lowering, there's mechanisms like ISA, educational institutions where the barrier to increasing your income if you really need to and you're willing to put up the work is they're present, right? And if that's present, then essentially your downside risk to taking bigger swings in, in, in life uh, is less. And if ISAs can serve that function from a venture capitalist standpoint, it means there's going to be more smart, talented people taking big swings. And that's, that's good for all of us. Totally. And you guys identified... Uh, earlier before the call, we were talking about some of the downsides or potential downsides of, of ISAs. Why don't you get into some concerns you have? Absolutely. I mean, I think that, um, you know, there's an adverse selection issue. Uh, so people who have, you know, higher uh, earning potential are more incentivized to take out debt. Um, you know, why would someone do sort of an ISA or income share agreement if they're confident, you know, they'll, they'll make a high income and, and ultimately sort of overpay for it? Uh, so this sort of leaves people who are less likely to pay back the loans. Uh, and if they do, it'll be on a smaller level of, of income, ultimately. Uh, and I think, you know, we're not really seeing that quite yet, but that's sort of, you know, a theoretical top-down uh, issue that might come out of sort of the ISA framework. Um, I think additionally, uh, you know, timing problems. You know, with, uh, you know, debt, you start by paying mostly interest with a little principal repayment. And by the last payments, you're paying a small amount of interest and principal. That means as you know, your career progresses and you're more money, your debt obligations you know, uh, will be reduced. Uh, with an ISA, this is reversed. So as you earn more, you know, the amount you pay is also increased. So in theory, uh, again, you know, if, the, if the math doesn't quite work, um, this sort of disincentivizes the use of long-term ISAs uh, and the effective interest rate on uh, an individual ends up uh, you know, uh, on, on a long-term ISA, uh, which is, you know, worse than, worse than debt. Um, so, you know, I think, um, as we sort of look at businesses that, that leverage ISAs, you know, we're trying to find opportunities with, you know, short-term, shorter-term ISAs with, with sort of a higher rate. Um, you know, we, we want sort of consumers to reasonably, you know, estimate their income for, you know, one to two years instead of, you know, 10 plus years. Uh, yeah. And, and the cost of the consumer and profits of the business are more predictable and businesses, businesses can scale uh, much more aggressively sort of as a consequence of that. Yeah, and essentially from the company's perspective, if you really think about it, you're, you're underwriting talent and short-term earning potential, right? It, it's, it's not dissimilar to a bank underwriting a loan, right? When a bank underwrites a loan, they're essentially saying, what's the potential that this person's not going to pay me back for my capital? With an ISA, it's essentially you're underwriting someone's talent and uh, earning potential, 
And you're essentially underwriting it to what's the probability that they're not going to pay me back for the service provided in the form of education, right? And, you know, there, some ISAs aren't going to work. Some concepts aren't going to work. I think it's good. There's a lot of companies going for different categories. And, you know, some businesses aren't going to work because they're not going to underwrite, um, you know, they're not going to underwrite accurately. I mean, there's the, if you really think about it, you know, someone who invests in fintech and marketplace lending will say, you know, any idiot, any idiot can go loan $10 million out really quickly. The question is, can you underwrite the loan correctly? And I think from the, from the ISA's perspective, one, you're going to have to create value in the marketplace in the form of one, being able to increase income potential and also being able to produce viable candidates for a lot of these big companies who are going to hire them. But two, you're going to have to be really good at underwriting talent and earning potential in the same way a fintech company would want to underwrite risk and paying back a loan. Totally. And you also mentioned other use cases uh, that we can imagine. I say things that have high, you know, upfront cost. <clears throat> so like, uh, you know, for Uber drivers to buy cars or, you know, for construction equipment instead of, uh, you know, instead of raising, just raising debt for it. What, what, yeah. what examples there? I'll give you a perfect example. So I'm in my office, there's three paintings and they're from a guy named Domingo Zapata. All right. Domingo Zapata, if you Google him, he's one of the, well, he's one of the kind of top most popular contemporary artists right now. And so, but he, if you're going to be an artist, right. And you're going to really go for it. Um, you have to literally most likely not take, not take any income for maybe two to three years before you really, really start to earn money. Right. And back, you know, around a decade ago, um, he had a corporate job and he wanted to pursue art full time and he couldn't, he couldn't afford to take two to three years of no income, but he made a very small angel investment in a friend's company. The company did extremely well and he ended up making around $300,000 on that angel investment. Right. And that is very lucky. Obviously, I think he was more trying to support his friend, but at the end of the day, you know, once he may had that windfall, he basically said to himself, all right, I'm, this is a chance for me to go all in on my artist career. Now he's one of them. He's, you know, it unlocked his, it unlocked his talent and unlocked his creativity and it allowed him to do what he does best, which is be an artist. And a lot of people get a lot of joy from his art. He's made a lot of money as a, he's making a lot of money as an artist right now. So that's like one just cool story that I like. I don't know how, you know, how you prioritize that in an ISA, but it's an example of someone who had, had an unexpected windfall that the, the barrier to pursue something that they wanted to pursue and, and kind of, um, you know, work their creative energy. Um, uh, it, it's just a cool example of if you could prioritize that in a different format, um, how that could work. That's, that's awesome. I mean, that's sort of an example, I guess, about how around how people can become kind of more creative off the back of ISAs. Um, if you go to, you know, sort of the, you know, um, more basic level, um, you know, sort of, uh, the opportunity to, you know, pay for a portion of a, a piece of construction equipment. Um, when revenues are realized as opposed to raising debt at the start of a project, um, lawn care equipment, um, you know, building materials. I mean, I think there are a whole bunch of different sort of very basic, um, you know, items that, that can be purchased vis-a-vis ISAs um, and can enable just, you know, more productivity and sort of stimulation to the economy as a whole. Yeah. Also, some people talk about ISAs in the realm of of health. Um, you, know, uh, I'm, I'm curious. Maybe we can sort of segue transition into into digital health. Ryan, that's a space that you've made a bunch of investments in or, or look at a lot at a lot. When you talk about your sort of investment thesis, digital health, where, where you're excited, where you're not excited, etc. Yeah, I mean, look, I think um, it's an, obviously it's a, it's like 
18, 19% of our GDP in the US. It's a, it's a, it's a, and it's rising faster than inflation. It's a, it's a huge part of spend for our country. Um, it's been very, you know, there's a lot of challenges in building in healthcare. Um, but I think as an early stage venture capitalist, like we've started to see over the last, well, the one shift I've seen over the last three to four years is some of the smartest entrepreneurs are willing to pers- like want to start digital health companies, right? And you couldn't really, that was not happening five, six years ago when I first started investing. So that's one encouraging trend. Um, but look, we, we, we really, the two things we see right now in the early stages, I think we're kind of in the first inning of, of software really starting to affect in a, in a positive way, affect the digital health ecosystem and improve it is, um, you know, we're seeing founders build better, better consumer experiences by using technology, right? And we're seeing founders start to either increase access while, or increase access and quality while lowering costs. If you think about it, like, that's one of the things, like, in the early days, I think of, or what we're going to see in the next five years, I think you're going to see a lot more solutions around founders being able to access, being able to increase access and increase quality uh, without increasing costs, maybe lower costs through, through software. And that's something that did not, has not existed. You know, it's kind of the, the healthcare triangle, if you look at it. Anytime you increase health, or excuse me, anytime you increase access or quality, there's a linear increase in costs. And if you decrease costs, there's a linear decrease in access and quality. And I'm starting to see founders figure out ways to use technology to kind of reverse that cycle. Um, and we're also seeing founders start to, for the first time, operationalize data in the right way. Um, you know, data obviously in the healthcare system is, is it's locked in, it's locked in these EHR systems like Epic have been fairly closed. We're starting to see over the last two years, um, we're starting to see large health systems, one, want to make this uh, data available to founders who are building companies. And that's a positive trend. And we're starting to see different ways for, for entrepreneurs to get access to the data they need, the consumer data they need, patient data they need to actually operationalize it. And I think we're just really in the first the first inning of seeing founders start to build companies that, you know, either create better experiences or create better health outcomes in the form of operationalized data right now. Totally. And, and how have you sort of seen that evolve over time? Like what, what was digital health, you know, like five years ago relative to where it is today? Yeah. One of the biggest changes I've seen is you're seeing very high quality proven founders willing to, willing to build companies in the industry, right? And, you know, we're investors in a company called K-Health here in New York and Alon Block at K-Health. You know, he's a longtime CEO of Wix.com. He's the founder CEO of Vroom, which is one of the largest use on online uh, car marketplaces and just a world-class entrepreneur where I, I don't think, and he's just now getting the resources. He got access to consumer data, uh, you know, to make K's, K-Health's product function properly. He wouldn't have gotten access to that data four or five years ago. Um, and you're just seeing people like him who are extremely talented entrepreneurs who can build massive companies that can eventually go public and be worth billions of dollars in market cap. You're seeing them go all in on some digital health concepts where five years ago, you just didn't see that. Five years ago, you saw like lifetime healthcare person building healthcare companies. But I mean, I think like actually Nat uh, and Zach at Flatiron were, were two of the first like really good generalist entrepreneurs to try to do something big in healthcare in with, uh, with Flatiron and you're just seeing more of that and that's encouraging because my opinion on digital health, like you've got, I think it's a hard sector to invest in because there, it looks like there's so much low hanging fruit in the sector, but there is a lot of incentives that uh, don't make sense. There's a lot of irrational incentives and in how people are incentives to play on the back end. And I think, you know, it, a lot of times when we invest in a digital health company, we'll talk to the founders before 
And we'll really say, look, if you were to look at all the players in this ecosystem, how are you going to work with all of them, right? Like if you look at the payers, if you look at the patients, if you look at the providers, if you look at, if you look at employers who essentially subsidize health plans, walk us through like how, you, how you're going to build this company and work directly with all four of these players. And sometimes pharma is included, sometimes it's not. Um, and, you know, walk me through their incentives, how you're going to present your company, how you're going to deal with all these players, because you're probably going to have to deal with them. And some of them are going to be incentivized not to play along. And, you know, I think the best, we've had the most success in investing in founders who have a very, uh, a very deliberate strategy on how they're going to approach all four of those parties in the ecosystem. And, you know, the ones that don't have a very deliberate strategy usually end up getting blindsided. Totally. And it, you guys have also done a lot of digital commerce. Um, I'm, I'm curious how you've approached that space in, in, in the last few years and how, that's, how that space has evolved. Yeah. So, I mean, I think if you look at digital commerce over the last, that's another area where um, the, macro, the macro story, the macro trends are, have been in effect for the last you know, seven, eight years. Digital commerce is now, I think it's above 10% of total like retail purchases. And it's just going to continue for another five years, double digit growth. So the market just continued to get bigger. It's enabled, I mean, everyone knows this. It's enabled platforms like Facebook have enabled more companies to direct directly with the user. And so the, the first iteration was just going direct to consumer, right? The ability to build a brand where you control a two-way relationship with the consumer and you had a direct relationship with that consumer, right? That was the first kind of V1 of these direct to consumer brands. Um, I think the challenge over the last two or three years has been the ability to take a playbook that worked in 2011, 12, 13, 14, and apply it in 2018, which is buying a lot of ads on performance marketing channels, and you know, basically having a standard branding firm do, do all your creative, and then applying a pure performance marketing acquisition strategy post-seed. And I think what you've seen is that it's just gotten more expensive. The toll on the highway has gone up, right? And it's just gotten more expensive to acquire users. And it has made it over the last two years, I'd say specifically for direct-to-consumer businesses, if you're relying heavily on performance marketing spend, uh, the capital efficiency of those businesses has gone down, right? It's taken more money to acquire the same amount of users, and that makes it a less profitable uh, business for, for us investing in the seed stage. What we've, what we've really focused on in new investments is the founding team's ability to build um, organic channels that are off the typical performance marketing channels, right? And it has to be very native and very specific to the business and the user. And the, the companies we're seeing and the founders we're seeing have success today have very deliberate plans around how they're going to build, you know, non, how they're going to acquire users of capital efficiently off the traditional performance channels. And they're very, they know their user well, and the approaches are not like, hey, this worked for some other company. It's going to work for us. It's very native to their company. And those are the type of companies that succeed right now. And it, you just can't rely. I'd say the biggest difference is you can't rely on just traditional performance marketing channels anymore. Yeah, totally. Don, you, you've, your firm has been looking a lot at vertical SaaS recently. Can you talk yeah. about why you're looking there and where you're excited? Yeah, I mean, you know, um, sort of along with the theme of sort of, you know, ISAs, you know, making um, life easier uh, for folks, um, you know, in parallel, we're, you know, consistently seeing new software technologies that, um, you know, make uh, work easier, uh, which, you know, are revolutionizing industries that are sort of antiquated and bringing them into modernity. 
um, and um, creating just a lot more scalability across work and processes. Um, we're investors in a whole variety of different software companies, but I think one of the most exciting um, categories that we're, that we're thinking about right now is the commercial rail industry, uh, which you know Warren Buffett and a whole variety of other private equity investors um, have holdings in, um, in which you know is you know frankly reaping significant profitability uh, today off the back of the transportation of commodities and you know other uh, important items, yet is plagued with uh, inefficiencies along the lines of navigation, along the lines of load balancing. Um, you know how much can a uh, can a can can a uh, can a car sort of carry on the rails um, and a whole bunch of other you know sort of issues. Um, we invested in a business called Cedar.ai a couple of years ago, uh, which actually sort of went out to solve those problems. And you know I think that's a category that we're really really excited about and where we're seeing some significant traction. Um, we're also big fans of the um, farm to table movement. So, you know, it's been a trend for quite a while now, but, you know, is there, um, is there an opportunity to sort of digitize uh, portions of that movement? Uh, we invested in a business in Seattle called Barn to Door, which we're very excited about, um, which is, you know, kind of effectively a Shopify or, you know, a, um, an e-shop development platform uh, for farms and sort of agriculturalists to purvey their products, um, to track inventory, uh, to you know, set up picking and packing lists uh, to enable payments um, and to also you know enable delivery. Um, so you know that's quite a leap in terms of what's going on in the category right now, where uh, you know the farm to table movement has largely sort of lived through farmers markets or sort of exclusive um, you know merchants. Um, you know we feel like there's an opening of kind of the demand side um, in in the entire category off the back of. Uh, you know, more e-commerce work. Um, and sort of thirdly, um, you know, we're very excited about a business that does sort of AI data entry, um, you know, creating more efficiency in, you know, highly manual, um, you know, highly operational kind of category um, where, you know, there's a lot of room for error um, where KPIs aren't sort of regularly tracked. Um, you know, HyperScience out of New York City uh, has created a tool which effectively allows, you um, you know, human readable data to be uh, converted to machine readable data. Um, and you know, big insurance companies, uh, mutual funds, banks, uh, and others are all very, very excited about kind of the efficiency and the accuracy that, that hyperscience purveys through its software. Totally. And you guys are both focused on investing, not just in the U.S., but, but internationally. Um, and, and thinking about uh, sort of business models, obviously, uh, Global Founders Capital, you know, uh, you know, with the some of our brothers and, and Rocket Internet. Um, what have you seen right now in terms of uh, business models that are replicated internationally? You know, starting the U.S. versus business models that are starting uh, internationally replicated U.S. What is sort of the intersection there, interplay of, of how we're seeing? This? Yeah, I mean, I think there's, you know, the interesting thing is I think there's cross pollination globally in terms <clears throat> of models that you might see in one country and then in another. Uh, for example, and, and it's it's quite interesting too that like you know some of these businesses can um, all come from the same source. Uh, you know, Y Combinator, for example, um, you know, incubated Lambda School, which you know, which which we which we all love. Um, they also incubated you know, and Lambda Schools are primarily U.S. focused. They also incubated um, or or 
had in their batch a business called Microverse, um, which is sort of a Lambda school kind of for outside the US. And so I think the um, sort of interplay between uh, seeing successful models uh, sort of in the US and then sort of um, seeing that same model kind of elsewhere um, is, is a positive in a lot of ways because learnings can be shared, um, collaborations can be afforded, um, and ultimately, um, you know, if a model is doing good for humanity, um, you know, I think that's, um, that's enabled, you know, across many, many geographies. Um, I think the other sort of interesting thing to think about is that, uh, you know, innovation, um, sort of call it uh, the inception of a new idea or a new business um, can happen absolutely anywhere. And I think that's very, very exciting. I think, you know, we've made investments in, um, in, in, in pretty much every country around the world, uh, believe it or not. And we're, you know, we see seed deals in every country around the world. We see entrepreneurs uh, going on and, and starting their very first business, um, you know, and, and taking that bold step, uh, you know, at the age of kind of 15 um, in, in geographies all around the world. So uh, there's a ton of excitement around entrepreneurship and we're so happy to be integral to its journey. Awesome. Yeah, and it's a true global market, right? Like, I mean, I spend most of my time in New York and parts of Europe, specifically the Nordic region. And, you know, if you think of a place like Sweden, um, it's a country of 10 million people, right? And uh, there's been more billion, you know, there's been a more billion dollar VC backed companies there in the past 10 years on a per capita basis than anywhere else but Silicon Valley. And if you talk to founders there, right, like they, it, it feels like the market's more global earlier for them. Um, because, because they, they just, by necessity of their home market being smaller, they're forced to think global at an earlier stage, right? And you can't sit in, you know, you can't sit in a country of 10 million people and build a multi-billion dollar business like you could in the U.S., right? So they're just programmed. I feel like European founders are more programmed to expand to their home country earlier. And, you know, from a macro effect, I mean, you talk to a company like Voya, right? Like Voya's the, they're the bird lime of Europe. And, you know, they were found at 18 months after launching, they were in 10 countries, right? Like, that's crazy. Like, that would never, it'd be hard to imagine, a, a, you know, Silicon Valley-based firm being in 10 countries 18 months after being launching. So most people raised their Series A. But, you know, I think one thing that I've, like, the last two years, spending a lot of time in Europe and investing is, the one thing that I've seen is, if you think about, you know, if you think about the New York ecosystem, um, you think about some of the European hubs, like London, Berlin. Uh, the Nordics, Paris, and like 10 years ago, these were all, you know, they really didn't even exist. They barely existed as technology hubs, right? Uh, five years ago, they all seemed really small at the Silicon Valley, right? I mean, New York was really just starting to take off. So were the other European hubs. And you look at them today, and they're all thriving. And there's more and more of the best technology companies are coming out of either New York, right? Silicon Valley is still the center, but more and more technology, big technology companies are coming out of either New York or Europe. And what I see is those, their ecosystems are very connected. And if you talk to founders like, you know, in the UK, if you talk to founders in the Nordics, talk to founders in Berlin, I think it's going to be more so in New York in the coming years, they want access to resources in other markets at a much earlier stage. And um, I think if you look at the last 10 years in VC of non-Silicon Valley markets, it was very like hyper-local, right? If you formed a uh, you know, a VC firm in New York in 2011 or something, you were saying, hey, we're super connected in New York. We can help you. We're, we are a New York firm. We're connected in New York, right? Or any non-Silicon Valley city. But now that's table stakes. Everyone's connected in their home market. And in my opinion, over the next five years, the very best firms are going to figure out ways to connect founders to resources in other markets. Because that's, that's what the market's going to want. And I think if you don't figure out a way to do that, you could have troubles with a VC firm. 
Yeah, I, I agree. Um, and, you know, I think there are a lot of really exciting arbitrage opportunities, kind of needless to say, across um, different geographies. And I think, again, the rise of the ISA is, um, you know, enhancing some of those arbitrage opportunities, you know, where people kind of anywhere in the world can become kind of developers and your remote work has become, um, you know, very common. And, and, and so, you know, I think there's a very, very exciting kind of emergence of, you know, um, you know, less of a, um, less of sort of a disconnected global society um, and, and more one of collaboration. Yeah. Um, talk a little bit about well, two, two things, uh, Ryan, I'm curious for your take. One is you mentioned Sweden earlier. Um, we repeat the stat about their, their unicorn rate. And then what's in the water there? Or, or why, why, uh, why is, are so many big companies coming from there? And then I'm curious to get both of your takes on long, short Silicon Valley relative to the rest of the world in the next you know, decade to come. Yeah, it's a good question. If you ask someone in a European country why like Sweden's punching above their weight, you know, you think about the companies that come out have come out of Sweden in the last decade. You've got Spotify, you've got Klarna, you know, you've got Minecraft, you've got Cree, which is one of the fastest growing digital health companies right now in the, in the world. Uh, you've got Skype. So there's been there's been a lot of um, you've got Izettle, which sold to PayPal for two point two billion. Um, you, you've got a lot of major companies that come out of there for such a small country. And I don't, I don't, there's not one thing you can point to. There, there is a, on a per capita basis, there's 2x more technical, technical people in the region than other parts of Europe. So there's a, there's a high concentration of technical talent there. Um, but I think there's more subjective things around it too. A point to two things. One, I think part of it I mentioned earlier, where people feel more, um, they feel like there's less risk in taking a big swing because it's a capitalist country with, um, with more safety nets, right? And they feel like there's less downside risk where in the US, people are prevented sometimes from taking a big swing, whether it's like student debt overhang, whether it's high healthcare costs, whether it's like, you know, child services, all these things are paid for in Sweden, right? So the freeing people up to like really pursue, unlock their creativity and pursue what they want to pursue and exercise in the right way, like that dynamic exists there. But there's, uh, there's something else that's a little bit more like nuanced that I thought was interesting is if you think about the country, they actually are resource constrained in the form of, uh, you know, in the form of like, hey, you know, you're just, if, if you're someone like, like, I don't even think Amazon Prime's there right now. Like if, you, if you're some, if you're a company, it's going to be one of the last, if you're a global company, it's going to be one of the last markets you enter because it's so small. Right. And if you look at um, let's let's take when when music was digitized. Right. Let's take when CDs and analog music went to digital. Well, in the U.S., it was like a no brainer. Like how does software create the most value for us in the U.S.? Right. We had we were not supply constrained when it came to analog music. We could drive to the store. We could pick up a CD anytime we wanted. And, you know, Steve Jobs basically unbundling the album and allow us to buy one 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 uh, song for ninety nine cents was was it felt magical, right? That was the value there. But like, think about Spotify. If you talk to people in Sweden who grew up there in the 90s, like in the analog music stage, there, a lot of times the top albums wouldn't be available there for like three, six, nine months after they came out, right? So, you know, one of my friends said, if you, if you want to go buy like the latest Tupac CD when she was in high school, like you had to wait. And it was really frustrating. And so there's also like high levels of piracy in Sweden, right? Um, because of that and before Spotify kind of aggregated that and Daniel actually took a different approach he grew up a musician he was a music fan big fan of music and so they were more supply constrained in the analog world and his thing from day one is how do we make all the music available to the world at any time right and that that was the subscription model that Spotify pursued 
because if your recourse constrained, having the access make it feels magical, right? It's not just unbundling. He's providing access where maybe he did or didn't have growing up in that country. It's a very native approach to Sweden, but it's an approach that, in my opinion, won out. And they're going to be the largest, you know, they're, they're the best digital music product. So it's, it's interesting, you know, does he, does he take that approach if he grew up in the U.S.? Probably not. So it's an interesting, like, nuance of if you are in a smaller home market, but you're highly technical and you're highly creative, do you take a, a more unique approach to, to the market, to a specific market? Yeah, and sort of to add to what, you know, Ryan is um, describing, um, you know, market, markets are also sort of, um, they're, they're also sort of test labs in a lot of cases uh, for specific businesses. So, you know, um, you know, Sweden with its small population or sort of Australia, um, you know, the, the um, population, reacts in different ways to different types of technology, to different kind of models, to different opportunities. And then um, as a business looks to kind of expand outside of that particular market, um, you know, it can leverage the learnings um, from uh, sort of its home market. Totally. And, and, and lastly, uh, long, short Silicon Valley. Long Silicon Valley, um, but long uh, so many other great markets around the world. Uh, you know, the technology economy is uh, booming and, you know, off the back again of ISAs, you know, of, of um, you know, sort of efficiencies built into to people's lives today and, and sort of that increasing efficiency. Um, people, I think, have uh, more of an impetus kind of day in, day out to become entrepreneurs. Um, if we look sort of specifically at Silicon Valley, um, very, very long Silicon Valley on the um, software technology kind of product side um, on the call it elbow grease operation side, um, you know, longer uh, markets like New York city, uh, sort of London, Chicago, um, et cetera, simply because there's more of a diversity uh, in the workforce in those markets. Um, you know, in Silicon Valley, um, you know, as we know, uh, most everyone's involved in, in technology uh, in some capacity. So if you're building a business uh, in Silicon Valley, um, you know, you're going to try to base it kind of purely on tech. Whereas um, if you're building a business in New York City, you might be more comfortable uh, having a, you know, a team of, of salespeople or account management people uh, who are sort of banging on phones and um, doing things that, you know, quote unquote, might not seem as sort of scalable as something that, uh, you know, can be done through AI or, or technology. Yeah, I'm long, I'm long both too. I mean, so I think Silicon Valley is going to continue to be kind of what it's been, which is people, there's going to be, um, you know, there's going to be continued innovation coming out of Silicon Valley. It's the ultimate network effect when it comes to technology hubs. Um, but at the same time, like if I were to, if I were to buy Silicon Valley or the basket, I'd probably buy the basket, meaning every other tech hub outside of Silicon Valley, because I think there's going to be more and just more and more as software continues and to, you know, continues to, um, take over every part of our society uh, and or fact, be integrated in every part of society in some way, you're going to just see more and more companies come out of hubs like New York, London, Berlin, Nordics, um, you know, China, obviously, uh, parts of Southeast Asia. So if I were to, if I were to, I guess what the question is, if the question is long short Silicon Valley, the short is, would you buy Silicon Valley? Or would you buy everything else right now? I would buy the other main hubs outside of Silicon Valley because I think their upside is much greater over the next five to 10 years. I think it's a great place to wrap. Uh, my guest today, have been Don Stalter of Global Founders Capital and Ryan Darnell of, of Max Ventures. Ryan, Don, thank you so much for coming to the podcast. Thanks, Thanks sir.
If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. 